Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Being successful in life requires social adeptness, and part of that social adeptness is balancing two seemingly opposing social strategies, competing and cooperating. But how do you know which approach to take in the hundreds of different social relationships you navigate day in and day out? For example, should you go out of your way to promote your achievements to your boss, or should you spend more time helping your fellow coworkers? My guest today explores these subtle and often complex questions in his book, Friend or Foe, When to Cooperate, When to Compete, and How to Succeed at Both. His name is Adam Galinsky. He's a professor at the Columbia Business School. And today on the show, Adam and I discuss why all of our relationships, even close personal ones, are both competitive and cooperative and how our natural tendency to compare ourselves to others either causes us to cooperate or compete. Adam then shares how cooperation can lead to high status and success and power, but how once we gain status and power, our natural tendency is to become a big giant jerk, which leads to our downfall. He then provides some research back advice on how to avoid that from happening to you. Adam and I then discuss why teasing nicknames are a form of social bonding and why putting all of your education credentials and your email signature can make you look kind of insecure. It's a fascinating discussion about the quirks of human social dynamics. After the show's over, check out the show notes at awim.is slash friend or foe. Adam now joins me via clearcast.io. All right, Adam Galinsky, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. So you co-authored a book called Friend and Foe, When to Cooperate, When to Compete, and How to Succeed at Both. And it takes a look at social status and social dynamics. I'm curious, how did you get into researching and writing about this this topic of psychology? You know, I'm both my co-author, Marie Schweitzer, and I are both, I think, characterized by a love of a wide range of research, a wide range of topics. And, you know, one of the funny things about Friend and Foe is I, I think it's both greatest strength and maybe its biggest weakness is the fact that in many ways it's 11 books in one because there's you know chapters on power and hierarchy and social comparisons and trust and apologies and negotiations but i think that really is emblematic of of who Maurice and i are as researchers is we get so excited by any interesting idea and we sort of go in that direction and explore it and so he and i collectively have become sort of experts in a number of different areas of psychology but in throughout all of that process we really noticed that a lot of our research individually, as well as a lot of what we do in our teaching, really gets at this fundamental tension that really drives human nature between cooperating with people and competing with them for scarce resources. So let's talk about that. You start, you begin the book saying that all of our relationships, you know, close family relationships, close business relationships, you know, you know, friends that we are on, you know, that we love are both cooperative, but also competitive at the same time. Can you provide some examples of 
of you know, relationships being both cooperative and competitive at the same time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see this just even at the at the firm level, right? So we see like Microsoft and Apple often compete in order to get people to use their products, but they also cooperate as industry members, let's say cooperate against the FBI or cooperate to get certain laws passed that are going to be in their favor. You know, and in organizations we see this extremely all the time where we collaborate and cooperate as teams to produce outcomes at the collective level, but then we compete for promotions and salaries. But I have sort of two very a great personal examples of this. One is I recently got married in the last couple of years and we had our first child and we're actually expecting our second child sometime in the next uh, week or so. But, you know, raising a child, there's nothing more cooperative than that as two parents. But then at like three o'clock in the morning when the baby wakes up, then you're competing fiercely with your with your partner for who's going to get up, who's going to get to sleep. And you can get a little salty with each other. So, you know, it's like, no, you got up last night. No, you get up this time, you know. And then the other case where I can see this really well in my own life is I was actually a surprise twin. And I even saw that competition in the womb where my brother kicked my ass. He came out of the womb almost uh, 55% larger than I was. And we, co- we competed and cooperated all the time as kids. And we could really see that process. So it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, spouses, whether you're siblings, whether you're coworkers, whether you're firms, we're always competing and collaborating simultaneously with everyone. So as you said earlier, that this book is really like 11 different books in one. And I love that because I love the, the breadth and also the depth you get into. Let's talk about some of these topics you hit that factor in and how we cooperate and compete. The first factor is we're always making social comparisons and that this is this is the source of motivation for us to either cooperate or compete. So how does our social comparisons with others motivate us either to cooperate with them or to compete with them? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, well, there's a couple of interesting things is that social comparisons, this is sort of research going back a century, has really been found to be a natural instinct of humans, but also even our non-human primate members. And so we naturally, we, we never compare our outcomes in absolute terms. All of our outcomes, all of our efforts are always done relative to other people in comparison to them. Now, what's I think most interesting in relation to the theme of the book is that, well, who do we compare ourselves with? Well, we often compare ourselves with the people that we're most connected to and most similar to and the people that we often cooperate with, right? So we, as a twin, who's the natural person I can compare myself to? It's, it's to my, to my sibling, to my, my other t- uh, twin. And so this is just a natural, inevitable part. And the binds that link us together are often the ones that are the people that we compare to the most. Now, sometimes this comparison is really good, right? And so I have a, a I mentioned this in the book, but um, I grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and North Carolina and Duke University compete in basketball all the time. And that really motivates them in this tremendous way. So UNC wins the championship in 2009. Well, Duke wins it in 2010. Duke wins in 2015. UNC makes the final in 16, then wins it in 17, still hawking back to Duke's winning in 2015. So these comparisons can really drive us and motivate us, but they also create sort of deep resentments and frustrations. And probably the famous example of this, I'll give you just two really interesting, fascinating examples. One is with monkeys. So a monkey gets a piece of cucumber, they feel really happy. But if they see a monkey next to them get a better piece of food, like a, a grape, well, that monkey who got the piece of cucumber goes apeshit. 
and they literally take that piece of cucumber and throw it back at the experimenter, even though they just ate it a couple of minutes earlier very happily. And so that's an example of comparisons. A more recent one that's sort of been talked about is in 1992, after Bill Clinton became president, they put in a new rule into the SEC that was designed to decrease the amount the ratio between how much CEOs got paid versus the average worker had been steadily rising over the years. So we're going to put in a little rule and it's going to decrease it. And at the time, it was around 30 multipliers. So CEOs got paid about 30 times than an average worker did. They put in this rule in, designed to decrease it. It exploded it. Within a few years, CEOs were getting paid 300 times what an average worker was. Well, what was this rule that got put in place? Well, the rule was all CEO compensation now had to be public. What they thought that was going to do was shame CEOs into reducing their things. But CEOs don't compare themselves to the average worker. They compare themselves to other CEOs. And they start seeing the packages that other CEOs get, and then it created an arms race. That CEO gets his package. I want even a better package. Oh, well, I want a better package. Oh, I want a better package. And all of a sudden, they're getting paid 300 times the average worker. So we can see these processes comparison. They drive us, they motivate us, but they can create uncheck competition and even resentment. So let's talk about how to get the upsides of social comparison while mitigating the downsides. So here's an example. I, I've been in situations where I'm comparing myself to someone and I'm like the underdog and that motivates me. But there's other times where I'm comparing myself to someone and I'm the underdog, and but it debilitates me. I'm just like, ah, I'm never going to be that good. So what's going on there? Why is it sometimes like being the underdog can motivate you and other times it can just be like, just depress you and not it just cause you to like not want to even try? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of things that are really important there. The first is you have to see the comparison, especially someone above you as ultimately a, attainable. Um, that you can attain that level of performance. And so what, what happens is we have this, what we kind of call the sort of latitude of acceptance. So our comparisons fall within that, meaning that we think we can reach that point versus our latitude of sort of rejection. They're so far away from us that we can't even imagine competing with them. And that sort of debilitates us. I'll give you sort of one example from my own life where one of the ways that we can solve this process is what I call expanding the status pie or we can also call it differentiation. So when I was a 12-year-old boy, I ran a 10-kilometer race, which is 6.2 miles, in 46 minutes, which is a tremendously good time. My twin brother ran that same race in 44 minutes. And no matter how fast I ran and how good I got, my brother was always doing better than I was. So what did I do? Well, I, I kind of did what you just said, is I gave up, but I switched to a different sport, and I became a wrestler. And then eventually I got pretty good, made all conference, was captain of the wrestling team. And so that's one example where one of the things that we can do as organizations is kind of deal with that comparison problem by rewarding people on their unique attributes that distinguish them from others within the organization. And that's one of the things that I teach leaders to do is say, find that unique thing in your employees and identify it and value it. And that way, they're not going to be comparing in this resentment way towards each other, they're going to be able to all get their own level of unique status and therefore motivate them further. How do you think social media is affecting social comparisons? Is it, is it making it more perilous that you have to be a little more aware of it? What do you think is going on there? Yeah. I mean, I think we see a lot, a lot of that with this idea that, you know, you don't want to just 
clutter your social media with all of your accomplishments, right? Because people want to be able to connect to people, not feel like that they're feeling the sense of envy and jealousy. And so I think there's times in which we can find actually ways to show some of our our weaknesses, some of our humility, some of our days that don't go great. And that makes us actually more connected and, and more personable. And since I wrote the book, I, I, you know, one of the things I do at Columbia Business School is get to interview leaders all the time. And as part of a class on leadership I teach, I got to interview a woman named Linda Rottenberg, who's CEO of Endeavor, um, a company that helps entrepreneurs throughout the world. And she's been called, you know, one of the top 100 leaders in America, you know, one of the great innovators of the 21st century. And she talked about how she only became a great leader when she stopped being super and started being a little bit more human. And she talked about by exposing some of her vulnerabilities, some of her anxieties, some of her concerns to employees, they actually started to connect with her better. And so when she just came across as a super person with this person with incredible accomplishments and talents, people couldn't really connect with her. And so I think the same thing with social media, finding ways to connect with people is incredibly valuable. And one of the ways that we can do that is not by just creating this outwardly super comparison, but by being a little humble and exposing some of our weaknesses and some of our fears. But you can't do the humble brag because that just rubs people the wrong way. Yeah. A humble brag is pretty much the worst thing that you can do, right? And so people are very aware of what a humble brag is. And so um, it's a term that's gotten into literature. People have written books about it. Scientists are now doing research on this. Um, a humble brag is not the way to go. Real humility is the way to go. Yeah, that example of the CEO, it reminded me of a story from George Washington. It was, I think, after Valley Forge, it was basically his soldiers were ready to mutiny. They didn't want to fight anymore. And he had rallied the troops together and uh, he had this present, this like letter he wanted to read. And what he did, like he, he put on his glasses. Because I think George Washington was very fastidious about his presentation. He wanted to be seen as pretty much perfect. But like him putting on the glasses and he said, I'm sorry, gentlemen, but I've, my, sight, my sight has gotten poor due to fighting in my country. And like it's, supposedly that moment, like people just like, oh, they, just, they saw his vulnerability and they wanted to fight for him. Yeah, and I, and I think you know, that's one of the surprising things I think about President Trump right now is, is that he doesn't recognize that actually acknowledging some weakness can actually make people feel more connected to you rather than less connected to you. Now, one of the things that you know, that my research shows and, and other people's research shows is I, I have this great phrase that I use in my class, which is you want to be superhuman, not human super. And what I mean by that is you want to expose your vulnerability after you've demonstrated your competence and that people respect you. But if you expose your vulnerability at the beginning, then it kind of undercuts your more uh, super qualities later on. And so there's this almost like the person I thought they were super but now we see that they're a little human and that makes me really connect with them. So let's talk about the interplay uh, between status and power. You start off this, this section of the book talking about there's a difference between being powerful and feeling powerful. So how can you feel powerful but not be powerful? Right. Well, I think, you know, you know, typically when we have power and we can have power in, in lots of different ways, we can have power by being um, a boss, you know, we can have power by the fact that lots of people respect us. Um, we can have uh, power by some of our social groups. So, you know, we can have power if we come from like a Goldman Sachs or McKinsey because they have such high status um, in society. And typically our 
power feelings correspond to our actual levels of power that we have within a context, within an organization, within society. But that's not always the case. And sometimes we can actually have power, but not recognize the power that we have and not utilize or leverage the power that we have to feel weaker than we really are and therefore not get some of the outcomes that we want. So for example, we might actually have a really strong alternative in a negotiation, which gives us powers because it gives us the capacity to walk away. But if we don't feel powerful, we're not going to leverage that alternative and we're going to make meek or weak first offers in that negotiations, for example. Or we don't recognize we have power we have at work and we give up that power to other people by letting them take control of situations. And so one of the things that I have shown in my research and some of the things I do in some of my teaching and consulting is to get people to recognize the power that they do have and therefore to leverage that and be able to utilize that power that they have um, and to recognize and to feel the power they truly have. Gotcha. And you talk about too how power, there's that famous quote from Lord Acton, right? Power corrupts, yep. absolute power corrupts, absolutely. What what goes on? Like, what sort of bad behavior do we take part in once we start feeling powerful? What does the research show? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when you just think about it, power gives you incredible level of control over your own outcomes and also the outcomes of other people. In fact, that's kind of the definition of power, right, is that you control your own outcomes and outcomes of other people. And that means that we don't feel the same moral constraints that we would normally feel. Basically, what power does, it kind of melts away those constraints, and we feel relatively free and unfettered in our behavior. Now, sometimes that's good. Sometimes, like, when we feel powerful, we act in an emergency where other people would feel constrained by fear of getting hurt or being embarrassed if it's not really an emergency. But oftentimes, it leads to very bad behavior. It leads to uh, cheating. I think we see a lot of that where, you know, banks felt very powerful um, in the mid-2000s, and that led to some very... Um, unethical behavior, risk-taking behavior that led to the financial collapse. But we see this in some of these incredible, horrific examples that have emerged recently, um, whether it's Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein, in terms of some of the sexual behaviors that people engage in. And, you know, one thing that I think is, is really important is you mentioned the idea of absolute power. And think about how much power Harvey Weinstein had to make or break so many people's careers by greenlighting their movies, by putting them into movies. And he just used that power over and over and over again, you know, by putting um, women into these incredibly awkward positions. And I think that it, you know, in some ways it allows us to just act on whatever our impulses or appetites are at that moment in time because those constraints melt away. And we can see a number of different ways, whether it's within business or in di- different types of interpersonal relationships, this absolute power corrupting absolutely. So how do you put a check on that? Because you're, I mean, this interesting thing like that, you know, the behavior that you engage in when you feel powerful can help you rise to the top. But if you continue that behavior, it can lead to your downfall. So what do you yeah. do to, to put a check on that? Yeah, I think that's a, a really great question. And, you know, one of the things that my research has shown is, is that something you just mentioned, which is really important to get power, I need to be a really good perspective taker. I need to understand what other people around me want, give them what they need, and they're going to then like me and help allow me to rise up the hierarchy. But one of the things that my research has shown is that when we get into power, we kind of lose a little bit of that capacity to understand other people, to connect with other people, to feel compassion to other people. In fact, there's a lot of research shows that 
when we sort of stop that perspective taking of others, that's when people start to resent us when we're in power and people form alliances against us and overthrow our rule. And um, we see this even in the animal kingdom, right? Where people aren't attending to the needs of others. But what I just told you also gives us the seeds to solving this conundrum. Because what I've shown in my research is that if we get the powerful who feel really age, this idea of agency action, I call it a psychological accelerator. In the same way, like a car needs a gas pedal to accelerate, power is our psychological accelerator. But if we take the car analogy further, if you don't have a steering wheel, you crash into things. So if we can take power and combine it with perspective taking, this idea of understanding other people, paying some attention to what they want and their needs, then we get the best of both worlds. We get this fine-tuned race car where we're flying down the highway, but with control with our great steering wheel. And so one of the things that my research has shown is one of the ways that we can get the powerful to actually take other people's perspective is to make them accountable, to make them um, answer to other people and not just to themselves. Now, sometimes in organizations, we try to do that with corporate boards. That's what corporate boards are designed to do. But we can also make people psychologically feel connected, let's say a sense of responsibility to workers that can uh, activate their perspective taking. Gotcha. And also going back to the status thing, because, you know, status is intertwined with power. If you are in a position of high power, high status, like don't go around flaunting it because eventually people are going to resent it and they're going to bring you down. Because as you said, like, like monkeys do this. Because I, I, I think that's the most fascinating thing. Like monkeys have elections on who's going to be the alpha. And if one alpha is just really abusing their power, then the other ones get together and they basically just beat the crap out of the alpha monkey and run them off. Uh, you see that happen with humans as well. Yeah, and you see this, you know, all the time. You know, we see this, for example, even within academia where sometimes faculty take a vote of no confidence in their in their dean or in the president of the university, right? So so we, we need to treat people um, with respect. And so it's it's funny and ironic that when we get power, we not taking other people's perspective, we're not getting them to feel the the respect they need. But as I mentioned earlier with social comparisons, if we're really good at paying attention to the people and recognizing their strengths and rewarding them even just validating them with kind words, they feel respected and they give us actually more power and they allow us to maintain our power. So one of the things that I try to get leaders to do is to recognize the how their behavior impacts other people, but also just to recognize that how they used to have this capacity and that's how they became powerful. I want to give you one great example of this, of how sometimes we don't recognize the power of, of our behavior when we have power or the effect it has. So one of the things that when you ask anyone in the world, you say, imagine you got a very short one sentence email from your boss that just simply said, I need to talk to you. I ask people, how would you feel? And they're like, I'd freak out. I'd feel anxious. I'd feel worried. Oh my God, what's happening? Now, a lot of times when we do that with power, we know in our own mind that it's not a big deal. Oh, I just want to share an idea with you, right? But we forget the power that we have over others and the impact that statement, the ambiguity of that statement is going to have on others. And I was working with a financial institution and the president of this company would do this all the time. And the employees complained to me about it. You know, oh my God, this happened all the time. So I talked to the president and I said, why don't you just share, you know, what it is? He's like, I don't have time to do this. Okay. What can we do so that you can alleviate these people's anxieties when you want to just get them in a hurry to come by and see you. 
And so they eventually negotiated a deal. The deal was, if it's not a big deal, and we shouldn't worry, just add a smiley face at the end of it. Like, that takes you two seconds. And so he agreed to do that. If it's not a big deal, I add a smiley face. Relieves everyone. Now, if it is a big deal, I don't have a smiley face, and people know it's a big deal, but that's okay, too. Um, but it's just that that not recognizing that the impact that we have on other people. And I think that's a good example, like remembering the proper emoticon to send to someone when we have power to alleviate any concerns that they might have. Yeah, it's a great example because I've had that happen to me lots of times where they say, hey, let's talk. And I'm like, uh, and, but I, th- I think some people might do that intentionally because they know, they understand there's a, a power, like there's the power's in their favor because like, you know what you're going to talk about, but the other person has no clue and you get to just steamroll them, you know, without, you know, not being aware of what's going to go on. Yeah. But I think, you know, I think, you know, how do you, how do you maintain your power in the long term? And we can use what's called dominance or domination or these strategies of bullying people or making them feel unsure of their standing. That's, kind of what Donald Trump has tries to do. But notice all the resentment that builds up over time. And, you know, what my research shows, and I think what other people's research shows too, is, is that that's just a wrong view of power. It's, it's an erroneous view of power. It's this idea that, oh, that's what happens in the animal kingdom. But that's, as you just mentioned two minutes ago, that's not what happens in the animal kingdom. It's actually when we treat people with respect, that's when we keep our power the longest. And so, you know, People who believe that the way to keep my power and to maintain it is to keep other people off guard, uh, you know, cut them down in meetings and show them who's boss. um, That's a recipe for long-term disaster. It may work in the short term, but it's not going to work in the long term. So this segue is nice to our our next topic. So knowing that the, you know, that if you treat people with respect and as equals, right, or, you know, somewhat of an equal, then it's better in the long term. So you hear all this talk amongst companies and organizations like, okay, we need to get rid of strict up-down hierarchies. We need to flatten our organization, be hyper-transparent, and everyone's opinion is just as valid as ever. But you are, you make, you show in the book that, that doesn't necessarily going to lead to success. It could actually just lead to utter chaos. So can you explain that dynamic there where, yes, you need to treat people with respect, but you, you need, there's a place for up-down hierarchies? Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, looking across the world, you know, that hierarchy exists, first of all, in every species in the world. It also exists in every culture in the world. It exists in every organization in the world. And And trying to understand this, you know, why is hierarchy the most prominent form of social organization that exists? And it's because it actually solves a lot of problems that groups face. For example, groups face the problem of um, how do we coordinate behavior, right? A hierarchy actually gives you a coordination mechanism. Um, How do we motivate people's behavior? Well, if people who work hard move up the hierarchy, that makes people invest in the group and work hard for the group. Um, How do we deal with conflict? Well, we need to have patterns of deference to resolve conflicts. If there's four cookies and three people who gets, and one cookie is indivisible, who gets that? Well, if there's a boss in the room, people kind of defer to the boss. And so hierarchy solves all of these problems for groups. And that's why I think you can see, you know, what organizations have the highest hierarchy? Well, the military, what does the military need? They need lots of coordination. And so hierarchy really solves their coordination aspect of it. And they need, you know, to have that coordination, they need low conflict and patterns of deference and cooperation. And they get it. Uh, through hierarchy. And what's interesting is that so many organizations have tried to eliminate hierarchy 
to disastrous results. First example, Google. Google came in, they're engineers. We hate our bosses. We hate managers. Let's get rid of managers. You said the word chaos. That's what happened. Zappos, Tony Shea comes in and says, we're no longer hierarchy. I'm going to change the word holacracy. We're going to have no titles, no hierarchy. And what happened? Well, typically, 2% of the organization quit in any given year. In the first year, almost 30% of the organization quit. Why? Because they described as chaos, as miscommunication, not knowing who was supposed to do what. So hierarchy actually solves a lot of these problems. Now, we can see, again, when hierarchy matters um, and when it's really important and when it doesn't by understanding, again, what it solves, which is hierarchy is really good when we need to coordinate our behavior with other people. And so one of my favorite areas of research that I've done is a concept that I call the too much talent effect. And so when we have too much talent on a team, that's bad. When we have lots of talent on a team, that's really bad when the team has to coordinate their behavior. And so research has shown in basketball, when we get too many talented people on a team, the hierarchy breaks down, they start squabbling over who's the alpha alpha on the team, and their actually win percentage goes down. But baseball, where we don't really have to coordinate our behavior, where each pitcher goes out individually, where each batter bats in a, a determined sequence, more talent is always better. And so what's really interesting is when we look at this idea is, is that uh, hierarchy really helps we need to coordinate. Basketball has more coordination than baseball. Therefore, um, we can get too much talent in um, basketball, but we can never get enough talent in baseball. No, it's, the basketball example is, uh, is a great one because like, it's relevant to me because like, I'm, I'm, live, I live in Oklahoma. Where I'm a big Thunder fan. And the Thunder just got George and Carmelo Anthony added to Westbrook. So you got these yep. three really powerful, dominant players. And everyone's like, this is going to be the year that you're going to go to the, they're going to win the championship. But as you said, it might not be the case because there's, they're going to be jockeying for who's the, the top. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think we saw this with the Miami Heat, you know, a few years ago when, you know, it was Dwayne Wade and LeBron James who are both a friends, but still each want to be the alpha dog. And they really, and they only won the title actually when ironically Dwayne Wade hurt his knee. And, you know, Bill Simmons had this great quote where he's like, Dwayne Wade became 60% of Dwayne Wade, solved the dueling banjos problem, and then they and then they won two championships in a row. And, you know, we saw this a little bit where Oklahoma City almost won the other night where Westbrook deferred actually to Carmelo Anthony, which is kind of an unheard of thing last year, right? Everyone would have expected Westbrook to take the final shot. But because everyone knew Westbrook was going to take the final shot, they were horrible in their final shots in, last year. And so you can see how... You can win when you have a lot of talent and you learn how to defer that talent. Uh, we saw that last night where um, Durant passed to Curry in a critical point when Durant was covered, where he might not have done that if they hadn't sort of solved some of that dueling banjos problem. So let's go back to this. How do you, when should you use, implement a hierarchy and when should you implement a more flat organization structure? So what I would probably say is first, yes and yes. So we bought more, both hierarchy and Flatness. And so what do I mean by that? Well, we need hierarchy in the sense of we need to know whose decision ultimately matters. We need to know who needs to go to whom um, in an organization. But there's a reason why people want flatness and hierarchies is because we recognize that people have great ideas anywhere in an organization. And we want to make sure that low power people's perspectives are in silence. 
And just as going to give you one example of this is I analyzed a hundred years of Himalayas data, every expedition that went up the Himalayas for over a hundred years. And what we found is, is that when an expedition came from a country that was very hierarchical, like Japan, for example, um, they were more likely to summit capturing the coordination benefits of, of, uh, of hierarchy. But they're also more likely to have people die in the mountain, capturing, they weren't maybe utilizing everyone's perspectives. Um, and so I think that what we need to do is we actually need to try to create organizations that do have hierarchy, but still create the opportunity for everyone to contribute and for low power voices to be heard. Now, there's a number of different ways that you can do this. So, for example, one really simple way that research has shown to get the best decisions made but still have the hierarchy is to let low-power people speak first before the leader does. Because once the leader speaks, everyone just gives them what they think the leader wants to hear. The leader needs to still make the decision, but they want to get everyone's thoughts out on the table. Um, And so that's just sort of one simple example. Another example is we can create the right type of rules in organizations. So, for example, um, uh, during idea generation, we need to create rules that allow everyone to speak up. So some of it is no criticism of, of, of ideas during the generation phase or no interruption when people are speaking during the idea generation phase. But we need to also implement those ideas eventually. And so then we put in a little bit more hierarchy um, and a little bit more structure when we get to idea implementation. So what I want people to do is not say have hierarchy, don't have hierarchy, is to know when to have hierarchy, when the more coordination is required, but still to allow low power voices to be heard with even in that hierarchy. And I just want to give you one other just great example that we mentioned in the book, which is that um, Johns Hopkins Hospital discovered that every time we do surgery, there's a risk, and that's the risk of infection. And they solved that risk through a five-step sterilization checklist. The problem was, A, doctors didn't always follow the checklist, and two, nurses didn't feel comfortable speaking up. How do they solve that problem? They actually put nurses in charge of the checklist. Now, doctors have no problem telling doctor, nurses if they miss a step, and doctors, uh, nurses also felt uh, more in control of the situation. Um, and so we can start to see, understand how we can have hierarchy with low power voices still being heard. That's great. Yeah. There's a, a book, the checklist manifesto that goes into. I love that book. That's where I actually got that yeah. example from. Yeah. Um, so yeah, checklist manifesto, anyone out there is a fantastic book. You know, just the idea of a checklist can be useful too. Cause like you give, you're giving sure. authority to this checklist instead of to yourself or to other people. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, what you bring up with the checklist as being really useful going back to what hierarchy is useful is we need structure in our lives. We need structure because um, we need that to feel in control. And again, structure, a checklist helps coordination, right? So we're trying to solve this, but we also need flexibility. And so we don't want to rigidly apply a uh, checklist all the time when we need some flexibility to deviate from that. So part of what I'm trying to help people do um, in this book is find that right balance between structure and flexibility. And just, I'll tell you just really quickly, some new research just got published. It's not in the book, but I just really love it, is we actually hired workers to do work for us. And we actually made situations where we had no contracts, really rigid contracts, or contracts that weren't too specific, more general contracts. We actually got the best outcome and the best performance when people got contracts that weren't too rigid. 
So the structure of the contract was really good, but the flexibility within it allowed people to still have room to move about and still get motivated and still feel like they had some control over the process. And so we're trying to find that right mix. Holacracy doesn't work. There's not enough structure, right? Too rigid contracts also don't work because there's too much structure. So it's really kind of like we're trying to find the Goldilocks world, that proper balance between just the right amount of hierarchy and structure and just the right amount of flexibility and low power voices being heard. So one of the fun sections that I enjoyed was was this about nicknames. It reminded me of an episode of Seinfeld where George Costanza, he's at his office and all his employees had nicknames except for him, or he didn't like the nickname he had, but he, he tried to give himself a nickname and it didn't fly and he was it just frustrated him. So what's going on there? Why is it that you can't give yourself a nickname and you have to rely on other people to give you a nickname. Yeah. I mean, I think that part of what nicknames are, are a social bonding mechanism, right? That's kind of the, the seats of cooperation. Um, and we connect with people by, by emerging from us a name that we give to other people. So one of the things that uh, I mentioned in the book is that happens in, in a number of different areas of the military is that, um, in basic training, the, the the troop gives each member a unique nickname or a marker, and that actually becomes their signature. You know, we can even see this in Top Gun, right? With uh, with um, Goose um, and uh, what was the uh, what was um, Maverick, uh, Iceman, Wizard. yeah, Maverick, yeah. Iceman, Goose, right? We see all of these Merlin, names um, coming into place, and it's part of the way that we initiate people into groups. This happens in fraternities and sororities also. Um, and it's a part of the way that we're saying, look, we're connecting and bonding with you by the name that we give you. Now, we want to have some control over the nicknames people give us, but it, it sort of speaks to the idea that we can't give ourselves our own nickname. Now, another thing that's interesting is when we're really good at giving people nicknames, um, that's how we also connect with people. And so I, I like this part of the book where we talk about, you know, George W. Bush had a way with language. Now we think about all the ways that George W. Bush messed up the English language, right? Uh, even telling kids, they, I think he says something, but you, you have to, you know, be good at reading or messed up, you know, even the way to talk about reading in the English language. But he was such a master of finding the right nickname for people that gave them a sense of feeling unique, but also valued in status. And like one of the great examples is called the California senators, you know, Diane Feinstein and Barbara Bachers, Ali, uh, you know, Ali and Frazier, like sort of saying you're heavyweights, you know, you're like Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, you're, you're the heavyweights that I have to deal with. And so when we, when we're uh, good at giving people nicknames, that's another way that we can gain our own sense of status and connect with other people. I think this also raises an interesting point. I think I, something I know is between different between men and women in terms of status and sort of status social dynamics is that men will often use ribbing and teasing as a way to like nurture. And I think sometimes women see that and they're like, what is going on there? Like that, that, that you shouldn't do that. But it, it's weird because like you're okay with that because there's like a line you don't cross that it's actually, it feels good to like, this guy is ribbing me because it means I'm I'm a part of the group. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, but that also, we even see that actually between the sexes in terms of flirtation, a lot of flirtation is actually really gentle ribbing of our, of our, of our spouse or partner, or, you know, a, a prospective romantic partner is, you know, again, it's about this idea of the theme of the book. And we, we, you know, we do this, the end of every chapter ends with finding the right balance. And it's because it's really about finding that balance. You know, we, um, 
if we can just find just the right way to tease someone, we can make them feel really connected. And I have a, a good example of this from um, uh, my wife and I met each other a little bit later in life, as I mentioned, and we wanted to have kids. And so we got engaged and then married six weeks later in a, a crazy wedding and another state with over a hundred people that we threw together. And anyway, uh, my wife had all these great ideas and she woke me up one, one in the middle of the night one day and she had all of these ideas for this wedding that were completely a monstrously expensive and be impractical. Um, and I didn't want to just, you know, condemn those ideas, but I teased her and I said, um, those are such great ideas. And, you know, we should get, you know, Barack Obama to do the ceremony, maybe get Paul McCartney to come sing and maybe get, you know, um, Sarah Silverman to come do some comedy for us. And she ended up giggling and because and, my teasing made her recognize how impractical the ideas were. And so finding the way to tease people um, can, can be really good. And actually, my, my wife and I have actually nicknames for each other that are actually on our wedding bands. So she would always get frustrated with me. Um, and I'm sure anyone who's ever been married to an academic can, can uh, appreciate this of how precise I always was. She would say something, you know, it's like, oh, we walked four miles. No, we walked 4.2 miles today, you know. So she started calling me Professor Precision. Um, and my wife is like 5'2", uh, you know, 105 pounds. But she just like walks like a troglodyte, like kind of like makes really loud stumping miles, especially in the in the middle of the night, which would always wake me up. So I started calling her Stampy, you know, kind of like an elephant stamping around. And so when you can find the right nicknames, it's actually a really bonding mechanism for each other. And that's why we have our nicknames on our wedding band. That's awesome. So yeah, advice there. Don't you can't give yourself a nickname or you'll end up like George Costanza. Right. And then I guess you have to be in a position of power to give a nickname because you can't just be like you couldn't give your boss a nickname because that would that would not go over well, probably. Probably not, right? And I and I think that's you know, in very rare circumstances, could you give your boss a nickname, right? Um, but it's got to be the most gentle of nicknames and the most kind of praiseworthy of nicknames, right? Um, but the slightly teasing, ribbing nicknames um, are very, very difficult to give to someone who has more power than you. Now, it can work like in a fraternity, it can work in you know, in the military, it can work in the spouses when there's equal power. But when that power gets very distant, it becomes very hard to do it up, um, but you can do it down all the time. So this is another interesting bit of research you guys highlight in the book, because I've noticed this myself, is I'm, I'm engaging in an email with somebody. And sometimes I'm, I've emailed some like really prestigious professors who are out there doing incredible work. They've got books out, they're doing the TED circuit, yada, yada. And they have all these great acronyms after, the name, after their name that they could put, but they just sign off with like Bob or Jill or Jan. And then there's people I've emailed who haven't really done that, but like they make sure to put all their acronyms after their name in their email. And you're kind of like, uh, so what's going on there? Well, so what's going on there is that when we have high status and everyone knows we have that status, our titles in a sense become kind of irrelevant in our own mind, right? Because we know we're respected for who we are. But when we are insecure in our status, that's when we really feel the need to do that. And just, you know, I see this, you know, all the time in academia where you see assistant professors sign their emails, you know, Professor X or Dr. Y. Um, but when they're, you're kind of an established professor, you know, you sign it, you know, sincerely Adam or sincerely Maurice. And I think that sincerely Brett, we can see the way that these things come into play. And there's actually research that has been done on this. They actually went and they looked at the email signatures of uh, professors in psychology departments around the country. And they found two things that were really interesting. Um, the first was, if you came 
from a very high status school like a Harvard or Stanford or Columbia, you didn't have any titles in your signature. And two, if you were an individual researcher, even if you came from, let's say, not a very high status school, but you were well known in your field, you also didn't have it. But if you came from a lower status school or you're, let's say, a young assistant professor, then you had like lots of these uh, titles in your signature because you're trying to prove to people, look, I deserve your respect. Look at my titles. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that we do. And we see that, you know, earlier with my example of Linda Rottenberg, right, is that, you know, once she recognized she had respect, showing some vulnerability, not showing her titles allowed people to connect with her even more. So in fact, actually taking those titles away once you've established respect actually is a way for you to gain even more respect. Yeah, the thing this ties in nicely is the research that shows people from lower economic, socioeconomic status, like they're more likely to engage in conspicuous consumption Absolutely. than people who, who aren't. So I think it's sort of the same things going on. Yeah, and I, I, I often refer to that as the Great Gatsby effect. Right, where Gatsby, if you ever remember, is the famous F. Scott Fitzgerald thing. He came from humble beginnings, but ostentatiously had these parties to display this wealth. Whereas the people from true money, you know, across the the river or the lake, didn't have those same ostentatious displays. So, what's your advice there? Should you like put all the acronyms after your name, or should, or does that look like uh, you're trying too hard, or are there times when you should, or times when you when you shouldn't? I mean, I think actually the research shows is that early on, it probably is a good thing. It's to remind people that you are deserving of respect. Um, and so there's some research out there, for example, that female faculty who sign their emails with professor or doctor actually get treated better than, than sign it with their first name. Um, because especially when you're a young female professor, people will kind of refer to you as Mrs., for example, you know, and sort of and almost undermine your 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 uh, authority. And so I think there is some evidence that it, you you want to do it, but at a certain point, you want to let go of it. Gotcha. Well, Adam, there's a lot more we can talk about. As you said, there's like 11 different books in this single book. Um, <laughs> yeah. So much there. But um, where can people go to find more about your work and your book? Well, Friend and Foe is, is you can get it from, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles online. It's uh, an audible book, Kindle, everything that, that you want. I also have a, a TED Talk, a very popular TED Talk that I did last year on how to speak up for yourself. So you can look that up too. And you can just put the name Adam Galinsky to Google and see other exciting stuff that I'm doing. Awesome. Well, Adam Galinsky, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. My guest today is Adam Galinsky. He's the author of the book, Friend or Foe. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash friend or foe, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the podcast, appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you so much. Please share the show with a friend or family member. That's how the show grows, word of mouth. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. 
Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.